Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name's Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Soto Grande, Spain. And I'm bringing you these podcasts. The aim is very clear to educate, to entertain and to energise the tennis community. Welcome to the next podcast. Welcome to episode 89 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Xavier Melisse. Xavier is not only a wonderful, brilliant, skillful, talented, fantastic tennis player, but he's also all of those things above as a person as well. He's down to earth, he's chilled, he speaks his mind. He, he shares how he thinks about tennis, how he thinks about life. And it was real pleasure to, to get that level of insight. Myself and Xavier do go back a, a long time. And I, and I remember us talking about different girls when we were younger. There was a couple of the English girls that he, he quite liked in the under-14s. And he'd ask us to send them messages and and here we were, 26 years later, talking about not the brilliant tennis career that he had. He had a, he was he was top 20 in the world, but by his own admission, his ability really could have gone on to do much more than that. And he talks about all of that and and more in the podcast. So I'm sure you're all going to love it. And I'm going to pass you over to Xavier Melisse. So Xavier Melisse, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. And here we are sitting as a couple of 40-year-olds. You know, I go, I, I go back to probably 1993, somewhere like Genoa or Arezzo or something like that, when I think our our paths first crossed. Um, and. Yeah. And and here we are now talking about our golf games and, and how things have, <laughs> things have moved on. So there's 27 years that I need to get out of you. But before we jump into that, Xavier, how how did your tennis journey start? When did the did the fire start burning? Um, it's just you know nobody in the family really played. Uh, only my brother, who's three years older, uh, got into tennis a little bit. Uh, just playing around a little bit, and uh, I, yeah, I went to the club with him, and I basically just picked up a racket and started hitting these big moose balls against the, against the wall, and uh, this one lady who had been there for a while said, you know, that's pretty unusual for somebody just to pick up a racket and know how to hold it and hit a couple of balls, so she said you should let him play, you know, an hour a week or so, and that's just kind of how it how it started. It wasn't. I think I would have followed anyways because my brother was playing, um, but it was a big tennis school, and I just kind of started with these big moose balls. And to be honest, I, I do remember I loved it. It's just it, it triggered me the little game and. Uh, so, you know, it, it goes quickly. It goes from one hour to two hours. But my parents weren't into tennis. Um, my mom loved watching tennis, um, but she never played. My dad never did. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, just kind of we wanted to play. My mom drove with us to the club and just kind of went with it from there. 
But um, so were your parents, it sounds like your parents weren't pushy at all. It was very much coming from you guys. Uh, yeah, my parents were not pushy at all. They they gave us the opportunity to play, which was nice because, you know, even, you know, as it is now, tennis is is, is an expensive sport, um, especially with two kids. Um, but, you know, my mom, she drove us and she kind of went for a coffee. She never pushed us uh, when I was 12, 13 and I was playing. We sometimes just took the train and uh, kind of made uh, like a pickup with the coach. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. My mom drove everywhere in Belgium to, to have me play. But she was just a fan of tennis. I mean, I could have played against anybody and she would have just clapped for the other guy, which I didn't like at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it's just I think it's important that. You know, these days you see parents push, 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 and the kids burned out by 13, 14, doesn't want to play. And I think a lot of talents go to waste like that. And um, got, I was doing other sports. I was playing football a little bit. Um, you know, golf didn't come to later. But, you know, you got to move and, and just develop as a kid too, I think. And that's where my parents were really good to, to let us just do what we wanted. And I always think one of the big success measures, and here we are, I'm talking to you, you were a career high of 19, so you're a top 20 player in the world, a Wimbledon semi-finalist, yet age 40, you still have a passion for tennis, tennis is still in your life, you're playing you know, the, a lot of the champions events, and, and, and I think that is almost as much of a success measure of someone's tennis journey that you still want to be doing it at this age than, than some of these people that burn out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at, when you play, you're so in your bubble and, and sometimes you think, oh, I don't like this game. I had enough of it. You know, you know how it feels. You know, you have a period where you're not feeling good. Maybe things privately don't go well and you think, oh, I want to give it up. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a beautiful sport. I enjoy that you travel. You, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a privilege to, to be playing on the tour. And uh, like you say, I enjoy it now um, even more because... When you play on the tour, you're in your bubble. You think you can't waste any time, like, I'm not going to say talking to somebody, but you all, you know, you don't want to do press. You don't want to talk to the sponsors. And afterwards, as I see it now with the Champions Tour, I, that's all we do. And I actually enjoy it more now because, yeah. you know, the pressure is off. That's the first thing. It doesn't really matter who wins. Yeah, you go for winning, but you want to entertain the crowd too. And, but I, I enjoy it now because, yeah, you can go drink one with the sponsors and have a chat and, you know, sometimes yeah. smoke a cigar. I know it's not, you know, what, what sports is. But it, that's, you know, the sponsors pay for things. And they used to back in the day. And they should get a little bit out of players. And sometimes back on the tour, we are too protected, I think. You know, it would be nice to, to just... Yeah, have a word, sponsors, eat with them and, and just have, you know, just kind of get to meet them. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice reflection. And if I if I look back the, the, the first time I saw you, and I, and I think you probably carried this tag through your career, Xavi Emily's, what, what a talent, how talented, how skillful. It's obviously a, an age-old argument, but how much of it your skill level and your talent was that down to hard work and how much of that was down to just natural ability uh i mean i know i i was i was you know 
somebody from above gave me a, a lot of feel and, and a lot of talent. Um, but, um, you know, it's you have to work hard. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can be as talented as you want, and talent will get you to places. But at some point, you need to work hard. And I think um, because I grew up in Belgium until I was 16, 17, then I moved to Balateris in the States. But I won every game in Belgium. You know, there was Olivier Rocket on the French side. There was me on the Flemish side. And we were just winning everything. So I never really knew what losing was um, until, obviously, you start playing juniors and, and you, you know, you lose here and there. And I couldn't cope with it. So I think a lot of that was tough in the beginning for me. It kind of um, made it so that... Um, that I kind of didn't work too hard because everything came so easy all the time. Um, even when I went on the tour, I, I got a pretty good jump start. You know, I got wild cards. Um, I was I played well, so I kind of felt like I mean, putting in the hard work wasn't necessary until you all of a sudden get hit by the wall and then, you know, you get into the slump and then you realize I do have to work hard. So it, it winning and, and winning a lot was of course nice, but it was a bit of a, a downfall also, especially in my beginning years. Um, I worked a lot harder when I was 25, 26 than when I was 18, 19, 20, because I didn't feel like I had to. So it was a, a tough situation at the time. Xavier, well, I can I can say from personal experience that you didn't have to work hard to beat me, and and, <laughs> and 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 I remember, although I remember playing you in Belgium, in and also that another take from me was don't play Xavier Melis in Belgium. I played you in the semi-finals of I don't know what tournament it was. It was some international tournament. In Charleroi, I think. Was yeah, very possibly. Yeah. Maybe, and 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 you. You honestly must have hit forty-five drop shot winners against me that day, and then I was thinking, oh, "What is going on?" And and then and, and talking of the drop shot, I then remember watching Christoph Rockus play Martin Lee, and I watched Christoph hit a drop shot on Martin Lee, and Martin Lee was stood on the service line, you know. And and then you had Olivier, and then you yeah. had Justine, then you had Kim. And and I guess in England, as as you know, having worked with Felgate and 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 having you know have been quite closely connected to Britain, we thought that Belgium must be doing something really really special, you know, with their system yeah, yeah, to yeah, be creating. Yeah, yeah. How much of that was down to the system, or how much of that was just down to individual brilliance that happened to come through at that time? That's uh, a good question. I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I mean. Oli, yeah, Oliver Rokas, um, Kim Kleisters, Justine. I mean, it was just all, including me, I guess, was just that that the, the right time, the, that that one period where everybody had skills and had talent and had amazing uh, strokes and feel and everything. But I do have to say, uh, and I'm not always on the same page with the Belgian Federation, but they did have... Um, it's changed now, but they did have a really good system from the age of 12 to about 15, 16. Um, 
they were good coaches. We were in boarding school. Uh, we had a group of, I mean, for me, we had a group from anywhere from four to eight players, uh, the same with the girls. Um, so it was a good system. We would train during school. We had homework. We'd stay in boarding school Monday to Friday. Um, and we had good coaches that were good teachers from the age of 11, 12 to about 16. I, I mean, we had some good ones. Um, but once you were 15, 16, then that was the, that's why I kind of left also because I, I didn't feel like, yeah, they got me, you know, they got me my strokes. Um, but at at some point, nobody really knew um, how to take it to a different level. So that's why I left to voluntary because that was the best. And for me, it was the best decision. And I'm glad I did it. But I think it's just also a coincidence that it was just all at the same time. I mean, it just came so quickly. Ollie uh, and me, all of a sudden, Kim was there. Then Justine came in. Uh, and Steve Darces was a little bit later. It just kept going. And, you know, as you see now, there's not much, you know, there's Goffin, uh, but that's kind of it. There's nobody really behind. Uh, you still have Bemelmans and Copians, which are hanging around 150, 200. But, you know, there's, and those are getting older also, but there's no young talent anymore. So I think it's a bit about, um, there was, I mean, to be honest, there was so much talent at one stage. And I, think for the coaches it was nice to work with also because all of a sudden you had this group that kind of came through and uh and just had a good feel but ollie and i ollie was in a different uh system so okay that's he was uh with the french federation justine also and kim and i were on the Fle on the flemish side so you know it's, i think i had a lot to do with talent because it wasn't in the same system but at the end of the day we did play a lot together as you know we Traveled with Ollie back in the day, so um, you yeah you guys came in and said, well, Belgium is the coaches, and you got them all. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think it was. I mean, I don't want to do any discredit to them, but it it didn't have to do. I think they just also got lucky that this whole batch came through, and 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 as you see now, there's there's nobody waiting. So I think it was a good time at the right time. Yeah. And what about coach? I mean, because I always think someone like yourself, Xavier, and I, I always used to think this about Andy Murray, and Andy's a, is a few years younger than us, but I remember Andy, I could see him coming at the age of 11 or 12. And I've always said, I think Andy Murray would have been a top 20 player who ever coached him. You know, and, yeah. and then I, then I think he need he needed then that extra, and obviously then he needed someone like Lendl to get him to become a Grand yeah, Slam winner. Yeah, yeah. But how how much would you value a coach and how much would you put, I guess, coaching down to your success? Or do you think a player like yourself would have got there anyway? Um, I, I, I always say if you would have sent your dog with Kim Kleisters, she would have made it anyways because she was so good and so talented and so skillful and athletic. So... Obviously, like you say, you can become 10, but then it, what does it take to become nine and Grand Slam? And then you really do need a coach. Um, but I feel like wherever you would have gone, you would have gotten there anyways, especially, you know, to the 100 or the 50s. But um, I, I mean, for me, 
when I went to Balateris, we had a group of 10 people with, you know, remember Federico Luzzi, you know, yeah. um, and Paul Henry, Matthew, he was there too. So we were all in the same group. And we had a coach called Fritz Now, who was um, the coach of Agassi for so many years together with, uh, and didn't want to travel anymore together with Nick Balateri. And that really opened my eyes because that went from, um, from the Belgium coaches, which were good, but I, you know, but it was more playful and stuff to really coaching about tennis. I mean, I learned from two or three coaches. I really learned a lot. I, my first coach in Berto, then the, um, with Fritz, we went from boys to men. He was, this guy had, uh, he had throat cancer, uh, survived it was so calm but so on the point um and um he yeah he really got us to to yeah he jumpstart jumpstart me going to the pros and then obviously i'm not saying this because he's british but the the most i learned was from from david felgate he he wouldn't say much but if he did say something it was yeah i still i still remember things and i i coached a little bit and i i still say things that he said to me and he gave me a whole new insight of, uh, of tennis also. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go back to the coaches at Boletari's, you said they taught you about tennis. You know, you felt like it went from one step onto, onto a different step. Can you give me an example? You give the listeners an example of the sort of things you're talking about. You're talking about technical, tactical, mental, yeah. physical side, what you're talking about. Uh, with Fritz, it was he was very he was like I said he was very calm, um, but I always said hey you know because in the mornings it was practice the afternoon it was playing sets against each other and I always said oh, I don't want to always play sets I want to practice uh, kind of and he said you know they were very compromising they were very positive that's the one thing that changed for me a lot I was always from. You know, I didn't want to work out in the Bel and the Belgian Federation. I didn't want to do weights or movement or go run because it was in a bad atmosphere. You go to the States, you know, there's music pumping, everything's positive. And for me, that's one of the things that changed me completely. It's just they would always see the positive. And on the court, it was not so much technical because everybody has its strokes, but you know, you got called to Nick's court and all of a sudden, you know, you, you're on Nick's court. You want to do your best. And I kind of feel like everybody was getting each other better. Where, yeah. sorry, in Belgium, everybody kind of was just out for themselves. So I, I, I enjoyed Fritz because he was very uh, easy. Uh, and if he did have to say something, he would call you next to him and say listen you know you you gotta do this you gotta tactical wise especially a little bit playing more percentage wise uh but just the whole yeah it was just positive even if you had a bad day it was always somebody saying come on buddy this is you know this and that so it was very uh, eye-opening for me that you could practice and and have fun doing it you know because I always thought, well, running, I have to go run, I have to do weights. But there was more like, listen, you, you're doing it because you want to get better, stronger. But in a, such a positive, fun way that yeah. it just become, it just became easier. And what was what what was it like working with Nick Bolateri? 
I mean, it, it, I enjoyed it. I mean, the guy has a, a, a the heart of gold. He's he's was strict. He would also, which was which I really enjoyed, is he would never almost say things to me when I was coaching. When I was coached by Fritz, he would talk with Fritz, say it to Fritz, and Fritz would say it to me. So it always come from the same person until you really messed up. Then Nick stepped in, and then it was. Uh, but I remember this story. I was playing uh, Orange uh, Eddie Hare. And, uh, you know, I was in the quarters. I was playing Derek Pasco, which you probably still remember, <laughs> Russian guy, this machine. And uh, I wasn't in the mood. And I was already living on campus in Baltary. And Nick came to watch. And he, it was awful. I didn't, wasn't in the mood. I was kind of tanking a little bit. And uh, Nick said to Fritz, you know, if he doesn't get his effing ass moving, he's going to be very sorry. And I was... You know, when Nick said something, then, you know, all hell broke loose. So I won 646 love just because I didn't want Nick uh, on my back for a couple of weeks. So, but, you know, it's just, um, it was nice. And I got to practice with the pros there. And, you know, Nick is, it was tough. I think he was tougher back in the day before I got there. Um, okay. But he is an unbelievable motivator. He, sure could get you to move mountains if you came off the court. Um, and it was just, yeah, like I said, just the whole atmosphere there was amazing to practice in. Yeah. And what was your identity as a tennis player? What type of tennis player were you? Um, I, you know, I used my forehand a lot. Um, my backhands were pretty solid. Um, I would, I, if I, when I, I would say I was just steady, and then I had a lot of feel, a little bit slides, change it up a little bit. Um, obviously, like I said, I my mental side the beginning years were were bad because I never knew what losing was. Um, so everybody would always say, "Well, just get a mad, and then you win the match," and which yeah. was true for a long time. So um, I did work with a really good uh, sports psychologist, also uh, Chad Bowling at the academy who's now doing the Yankees, so a very good guy uh, and nice guy. He knew a lot about sports. But, you know, my tennis was always okay. If And my physical uh, got better when I got to the States and started believing that I really needed it. Um, but the, the for me, it was more the mental side, if I could keep down. Um, and um, But I wanted it to be taught in – in in practice i wasn't gonna read books or do abc or write it down it didn't make sense to me that way i wanted somebody who was there next to me and could see me through it when i was going crazy or something so you know it's it's it, it was tough in the beginning because of like i said because of your background i never lost so i played 87 sets in practice at the academy i never lost one so losing wasn't in my book so it was um it was a bit, I wish it wouldn't have gone that way, that I would have learned how to lose earlier in, in, in life than little, rather than later. Because it always, it always struck me, Xavier, that like, because of your skill level, if I just touch on one shot, we used to call it the Melise. So me, <laughs> Simon Dixon, David Sherwood. Sherwood, yeah. And it was the, it was the inside out forehand, forehand angle 
Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and, and actually that year, 1994, you and Olivier were the only pair to beat me in Sherwood in doubles. You know, I think, I, <laughs> I think we got, remember that. <laughs> we, we got you in Tarbs, but you beat us in the GB against Belgium team event, the European Championships. Yeah. And, and you just kept hitting this inside out forehand angle. It's such a, such a difficult shot to hit. And I, and I think, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is you seem to be able to just adapt almost to situations because of your skill level. But if you almost now put your reflection and maybe a bit of a coach head on, how important do you think it is that for, for juniors or players that are starting to transition into the game that they have quite clear identities, that they know what they're doing on the court? Uh, it's very important. I think um, you, you see kids and they go one way. Just hit it as hard as you can, use the serve, boom, boom, boom. But, you know, I mean, look at Federer, you know, even Nadal sometimes use a little bit of slice. Uh, you know, don't give the the guy on the other side constantly the same same ball because he will adapt at some point. If you keep serving to one side, it might work for two or three games, but he's going to sit mm -hmm. on it after a while. So it's very important for juniors to use the slice, get a little bit of a high ball. And we did that a lot with Nick Volateri, actually. A nice, big, deep, high ball. It does wonders, you know. You don't always have to hit it hard. Hit it deep. I'd rather have it hit deep at 60 kilometers an hour than short at 100 because they're going to sit on it, especially today with how fast they are. So it's very important to change up. You have to. You can't do just unless you're like a Djokovic, which is like a machine, obviously. But even him, he's, he comes to that more and more, you know. So you got you to gotta adapt your game. You got to adapt to your opponent sometimes. If, if your opponent is Spanish, you're going to slice it a bit to his forehand sometimes with that grip and you know, if it works and keep doing it. If it's not, then you have to be able to adapt or, you, you know, you're going to lose. Yeah, very good. And and as you transitioned into, I know you I mean you were a good junior, around about top 10 in the world juniors. How how did you find the transition from a junior now into being with the big boys on the pro tour? Yeah, um, I kind of, to be honest, in that aspect, I got, to be honest, really lucky. I never really thought about, uh, you know, yeah, you always say, well, I want to go pro, but I never really thought about, okay, now I am going pro. So yeah. I went to the academy. Um, I think I was just 17 and practice was great. And then I did win the Eddie Herr uh, that year that I just talked about earlier. Um, and then I was going to go to Orange Bowl and Nick came to me with, with Fritz and says, there's no point of playing a tournament was exactly the same like the week before. So I didn't go to Orange Ball and he had me practice, you know, with Thomas Inquist, Marcelo Rios, Tommy Haas was there, Peter Corda. I mean, for me as a 17-year-old, you know, that's, that's like being in heaven. So the decision was quickly made that Nick kind of said, okay, now it's time for you to, you know, to, 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 to practice with the big boys. And I kind of caught up quickly i mean obviously i got my ass whooped uh, the first couple of months but you know it was off season for the boys there and it was december and we would i was just their hitting part their sparring part which was 10 times better than going to orange bowl so and then wild cards came in and transition was made and the one good thing i you know i did well in in the first um wild cards um and I got a wall card. My first tournament was in Philadelphia. 
got a wild card qualified and had to play Pete Sampras, who was number one at the time. So it was a good measure. I I think I lost seven five in the third. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, the gates went open and a lot of stuff happened. But um, which, if I reflect on it now, yeah, it was fun at the time when I played Sampras, and I got I guess I got to two points from winning. I was only eight hundred in the world at that time. He was one, and but you know everybody jumped on me a little bit and which is nice to get contracts and sponsors but you know sometimes things go too quick it's not good either so uh you know it's tough to cope with stuff like that when you're 18 years old or 17 and and, you know everybody wants a piece of you and that's that's tough mentally on an 18 year old kid did you have someone managing that for you uh, yeah, I was with IMG uh, for, yeah. for a long time. Uh, obviously, uh, I went to Baltimore because of IMG. Uh, and and they, I mean, I still am very close with IMG. I always have been and to the family and, and they've been like a family. So it's been really nice. But, uh, you know, it's tough too. you. They look, you know, this kid is 18. He's playing well. Now he almost beat Samper. So, okay, let's get the contract. So Adidas came in, Oakley came in. This And sometimes, like, that's why I said it goes too quick. You don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. This money is coming in. You're 18. You know, you're still a boy. I mean, yep. I still had to grow um, uh, into a man and be myself. And, so, you know, that, that, that was, it was really good at the time. Obviously, at an 18-year-old, you get all this stuff from Adidas and you get money. But looking at it now, it's, it came very fast, very quickly. And, yeah. and you feel this pressure all of a sudden. But now I have to do good because otherwise yeah. they will be disappointed. So it's tough. You kind of feel like you're playing for somebody else instead of just playing within. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Did you <clears throat> Did you ride that wave at that time? Or do you think you got distracted by that for a while? Uh, I mean, I did write it because obviously everything was going well, uh, but it did distract me. It, it, I think it distracted me from what I really had to do because everything was coming so easy. Um, you just took it for granted, I guess. You know, it wasn't working out. Everything was good. Now, all of a sudden, you know, with your with your mates that are 18, you know, I'm not going to say you're the man, but, you know, you're playing well, you feel good, you're doing good. And it's just, you know, at some point you're going to hit the wall because you can't keep winning, winning, winning. It just doesn't, doesn't mm-hmm. exist at 18-year-old unless you're, like I said, a Feather or a Hewitt who is winning everything. Um, but, yeah, and then you do get hit and you don't, know, you don't know how to cope with it. So because you are 19 and you're still irresponsible at times and, so that that was a tough period for me. I, I I went off the rails even for eight nine months. I dropped back to like two hundred or two two oh five and bad relationships and just bad decisions because you're kind of rebelling a little bit. Um, but you know, even though it's a bad experience, it's it's you learn from it and 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 people. You, you get to know who the real people are behind you. Uh, that's a very important aspect in, in, in a career, I think, you know, because when you're winning, you got a hundred friends, but when it goes bad, you got two or three. So, you know, you, you learn quickly. You have to at a young age, you become very um, independent and uh, responsible for yourself and the ones around you. But it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough sometimes. 
And what are your reflections on Roger at that time? Because I think he had a similar at 1819. I remember speaking to him at Wimbledon when he would have been, I'm sure he was 20. And he was actually, he was in the door of the dog and fox. <laughs> we all know with, that one. <laughs> yeah. With with a pint of beer in his hand. And I and I walked past him and said, Oh, how you know, how's things, you know, from the junior days? Oh, how are you doing, Dan Arm at US College? I said, How's things with you? And he said, Ah, bit shitty. Lost lost first round to Kafelnikov. Not playing great. Doubles is going okay. You know, but he, he but he was he he seemed to be almost drifting at that point. But yeah. a year, a year later, he beat Pete Sampras, and yeah, I think then lost yeah. to Tim then lost to Tim Hemming in the quarters. And then I think a year later he won Wimbledon. So he yeah. seemed to just be able to something happened. There was yeah. a switch that happened. What are your reflections? Because obviously he was someone that you'd kind of been brought up quite close to playing. Uh, yeah, well, as you know, I think I, I played him in the under-16s in England in the European Championship, and yes. I won 6-love, six 6-1. Six it was easy. It was like a bye almost. The guy couldn't put one in the court, and then he would cry afterwards, you know. <laughs> and then we all had to go, come on, it's okay, Roger. I always laugh at that one because, you know, we're the ones crying now. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and it was, it was – uh, but he was always very nice. I, I still remember – but, you know, you could see he had the strokes that just weren't going in. He didn't have any guidance. You know, I think he he was from Switzerland. Maybe the coaches weren't there at the time. Um, but you could see every year it was getting better and better. Um, and then, like you say, at Wimbledon, I think at some point you need that one person in your life who can convince you that you say, okay, listen, Roger, I'm going to sit you down and I'm going to give you the two ways it could go. You could keep going to the dog and fox, have a beer, and it will yeah. go. And you'll play a quarters here and there. Yeah. Or you could be the best that there is with, with this kind of talent and feel. So, you know, you need that person. I'm pretty sure he had that. I think I forgot his name, the coach who passed away, his longtime mentor also. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think that would be the person for him. Um and yeah, it just, I mean, it was always there. It, it, you just saw it. It's its just, yeah. it was a matter of time. And it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's a matter of time. It was always there, but it was there. I mean, you saw it and we all saw it. Yeah. But it's just, you need that person. I, I don't think anybody just, it's tough to say at 18, 19, okay, this is the way I want. Unless I think you're like a Hewitt who was very, you know, uh, one direction at a young age and very, very mature at that at that point but uh roger i'm pretty sure somebody sat him down and told him the two ways it could go but did you feel that as his peer group as someone who and i believe i think you even beat him on the tour as well or like in the early days you were 19 or 20 he was 19 and and you and you beat him at that point as well did you did you see a noticeable difference on how he was off the court in, in terms of how he was living his life at that yeah, time? Totally different. Yeah, big, big difference. I mean, it was just all more organized, more professional. I mean, he was still laughing because at the end of the day, the guy is super nice still, still says hello to everybody. Um, you know, it's just the Swiss way, I guess. But 
you could see, yeah, you could see differences. His body was developing. All of a sudden, he was in better shape. Um, I think you could see it a little bit, like you say, in Wimbledon. Even when he beat Sampras, it was still all, you know, sometimes hitting the racket and, you know, uh, talking to himself. But that that all disappeared quickly. And that's what made him so good. You know, he could let go and all of a sudden. But you could feel it in the locker room. It's just Roger was coming in and everybody was starting to get scared. I mean, that's where it starts. It's one thing I learned from Felgate. You can win a match in the locker room just by being professional, coming in. Don't be arrogant. Don't be, you know, an idiot. But he was just, you know, he was always super nice. So he would beat you and then smile about it in a good way and say hello to you. And you couldn't couldn't be mad at him. So, but there was a big change in those two years a big uh, change in presence and yep. and uh, you yeah just you saw it on the court it went from throwing rackets in the hair and this and that to all of a sudden he was a man and you couldn't yep. do anything so yeah big big change yeah, i think the thing on the aura is is a massive thing i remember and things change quick in tennis because we'll get to 2002 wimbledon in a minute but at that point leighton was untouchable for for a year or two even at such a young age but i remember 2004 wimbledon i was there playing in four and five and in the and in the changing rooms if roger federer played everybody stopped and watched yeah that's true yeah that's that's why yeah you 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 win in the locker room it's one thing i remember from felgate it's it's so important it might sound strange or stupid but the way you behave like you say everybody stopped when Nadal play everybody stops you know it's just they didn't stop when I was playing unless it was seven all in the fifth you know so there's a there's a big difference between these two than 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 other players and and I don't mean this in a bad way but nobody you know nobody stops for Djokovic to watch you know what I mean he's unbelievable tennis player but it's just they had that aura about them. They have. They're so nice. They're gentlemen. They, 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 they don't disrespect anybody. You know, it all starts there too. It's not just the tennis. You know, I mean, yeah. I think seventy percent of of the of the matches Roger and Rafa play, they're already won before you go on court because everybody just thinks, well, what am I going to do? So, and they built that. It just doesn't come overnight. But you know, yeah. they they built that that status that you know, then it's easier for them to win after. But you, you had wins over Roger. You had wins over Rafa. You had yeah. win over Novak. You had win yeah. over Andy. Could that not have been you that built that? Um, honestly, uh, yes, I think it could have been. Um, I'll be strict with myself. The only thing that went wrong in my life uh, during tennis is at the age of 27, I, I worked out you know, you're mature at 27, you know what you're doing, you're becoming your own, I think. Um, and I had, I worked out hard, like crazy in November and December in the off season. And I felt for me, when I was good physically, mentally, I was so much stronger, because even if I lost, I felt like, well, I put in the work this time, and I can take a loss easier because I lost because he was better, not because I was lame or I was not in shape. So, and uh, I mean, I had the start of my life. I, I, I think it was the first time in 11 years I had 
beat Nadal in Chennai. I won the title, singles, doubles. Then I beat Blake in Delray Beach, won the title, singles, doubles, all within one month. I mean, I was flying. And I think that's the only time in life where I felt like Roger, where I felt before I went on the court, I knew oh, ah, this is my match. I wasn't going to lose. And yeah. I still remember that feeling today. It's just I was playing in Memphis against Gabashvili again, and I was 6-4, 2-1 up. And I just I knew I was going to win. And then I, I thought I was mature. I was in good shape. Everything was going right. And then I just snapped my wrist and broke my tendon, and I was out for six months. But that is the one period where I was – 21 in the world again and i had nothing to defend i had won two tournaments of best shape mentally i felt and this i felt like i could have made top 10 almost i'm almost pretty sure about it top 10 five i felt so good okay. um, but you know you can't um uh, injuries come and go and you can't do much about it but um i did mess up in the younger years um like i said didn't put enough work into it um, I won a lot of matches just also because, like I, like you say, you're talented in the beginning. Uh, you're up and coming, so people are afraid a little bit. I had nothing to lose either. So, um, yeah, and I always play good against the good guys. So that was a, a bonus that I got. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't too stressful about things. So, And that's why I had these wins over these guys because I, I feel like I could lift my game with them. Um, because I was good enough with the hands and the tennis. So it's just I would lose sometimes to other guys because they were physically stronger and <laughs> mentally better. Yeah. Good, honest reflections, Xavier. And what's your reflection on why it took till 27 to to realize that? Um, well, like I said, the first in the beginning, everything was just flowing. I mean, you're playing Wimbledon semis. You, I won a title, so you didn't have to think too much or, or change too much. Um, but then at the uh, age of 25, I, I went crazy in Miami. Had uh, 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 I, The lights went out for a minute and a half uh, <laughs> in my head. Um, so... That was a very uh, good reflection to myself. I saw the video afterwards of what I did, and it's uh, you know I was ashamed. Yeah, and now you laugh at it because it's so many years later. But at the time, I felt ashamed. I mean, it just, just didn't look good. So it changed a lot there. I got a lot calmer after that because you know once you see yourself like that, it just doesn't look good. Because that that wasn't the person that I am off the court or something. I'm always pretty relaxed and stuff. Yeah. So, and then the big change for me was actually that that injury, um, when I couldn't play for six months, made me realize also, um, what what you know what you have in life. What 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 am I doing? Um, I'm, I'm playing tennis. You know, my hobby is my job. We make nice money good money a lot of money you travel you you have fun you're playing a sport and i started realizing because i couldn't play for six months you start realizing what you're missing i mean it'd be good for somebody sometimes when they're not doing good to you know you have to go to work or people go in a in rainy days to to work it's dark outside you know sit at a desk so i started realizing that uh, you know i was really privileged and I got really lucky that I could do that. And I kind of, from my when I came back at 27, 
to my 32 or 33, um, I had a lot more fun playing those last six years than the first six years. Okay. And and I didn't go as high. I came back from 300 to, I think, 27 in the world, which was good. But I had so much more fun and realized a lot more things than when I was 19 to 26, 27. It's such a common theme on these podcasts that – we almost need adversity in our life to yeah. to 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 have gratitude <laughs> yeah no, and, definitely and it's and it's like uh, I, I speak to juniors about this all the time and they don't want to hear it immediately but if they do have an injury that keeps them out for quite a long time good in lots of ways, or, or they do yeah. have something that goes on in their life. And I think hopefully that's what 2020 might bring to us all a little bit as well, because uh, I think globally, globally, we've all had to deal with adversity in whichever different way. And there's obviously some people dealing with more adversity than others, but I think it has led us all to appreciating the smaller things in life a little bit more. And, and then, and, and, and you're another great example of that. So if only someone had broken your leg when you were 15, <laughs> yeah. maybe yeah. we would be having a different conversation or maybe you wouldn't even be coming close to my podcast. No, I would always come around. I mean, we go back a long time. But yeah, it's like you say, almost something has to go wrong or even worse. Some people, you know, somebody passes away and then they realize that person not there anymore and, oh, I should have done this and be better. And yeah, well, you know, uh, Alistair McCaw, who's on before me, always says it right. You never know what's going on in another man's, you know, he might look good from the outside, but on the inside, he might be hurting and struggling. So, you know, be kind and, and, and just, yeah, like you say, you know, gratitude is just one thing that everybody should have and realize what we have and not always look at others or be jealous and stuff. So, yeah, it's it's tough. It's something has to happen before people realize what's right in front of them. So my direct question to you, Xavier, do you view your tennis career as successful? Um, I mean, for myself, yes. Um, could I have gotten higher? Uh, I think I could. Honestly, um, I could have been top 10 or maybe better. Um it's tough. I'm always a guy. I always like to have fun. I don't mean going out and stuff. I just, sometimes I'm too relaxed and I think it, it's tough. I would have rather been a guy who was like a Thomas Buster, you know, but we're all different and everybody gets there in their way. Um, but I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't successful because if you get to top 20, obviously, obviously something went right. Um, but could have got top 10. Um, honestly, yes, I could have. Um, if I maybe, like I said, if I had a little bit of a different um, upbringing, as in matches, I mean, because I had a really good upbringing and I'm really yeah. happy. But to realize what losing was and how to get there, what you had to do, it all came too easy in, in the beginning and kind of was my downfall a little bit. Very good. Because, yeah, now I think the one thing, though, I would also say with, with your type of personality and your type of game, if it had become too serious and, and you had someone say, you have to do this, you have to be up at six in the yeah. morning, you actually 
might lose or probably would lose yeah. your looseness as well. You know, and, yeah, and yeah. It, you know, and you I could probably would have gone the other way. If somebody tells me do this and do that, I'd rather have them say, listen, do this because this is where you're going and stuff in a good way. If somebody tells me do this, I, I, I mean, I know myself a little bit also. It's just, I go the other way and I wouldn't have done it. So like you say, I wasn't the easiest guy to coach. It was easy because if they asked me to do something tennis-wise, I could do it in two minutes. But um, it was not easy on on how to explain it to me because, um, you know, I was pretty stubborn on, on some things. But like you say, you want to keep your looseness and you want to stay relaxed because that's where things got me also. But then I should have found that good balance between looseness and hard work a little bit earlier in life yeah i'd like to move into i guess the game of tennis a little bit bigger but starting off with with wimbledon 2002 and i guess my reflection i've had the last few days when i've been thinking about a couple of things for us to to talk about and looking into it 2002 you just turned 22 you that year, Leighton Hewitt won it at a canter. You know, he won yeah. that tournament so easily, really. And and he was 21. <laughs> yeah. And and David Nalbandian, who you lost to in the semifinals, who made the final, was only 20. Yeah. You know, and, and that felt kind of normal. I know it was a bit of a shock and there was there was some surprises. But do you think that that is possible now that we got three guys under 22 and 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 secondly why do you think that was the case at that time um i think today it's it's tough um to to do it at that age everybody kind of comes through a little bit more around 23 4 5 um they also play longer um so um why was it back in the day I don't, I don't know. I mean, you had Safin coming through also. There was maybe like it was back in the day with the Belgian players, just a, a, a new batch coming through. Leighton was so mature for his age. Um, There's just a lot of talented players at the time. Now Banyan was so solid. I mean, he, he was his whole career. Um, it's tough to explain why that happens sometimes. I mean, that whole draw that year, uh, was wide open. Andre Saw was in the quarters, and I mean, I was in the semis. Nobody really heard, but you know, I, I love the. From personally, I love the grass. So I always had a, f- a feel like um, you know, you have a good feel with your hands, which you need on grass to create shots, which you usually during the year will never get. So I always embraced it. I think the Spanish guys hated it because they didn't and they couldn't get away with the one one way tennis. So yeah. you know, it's a. Uh, it's a different game on grass and why with the younger players today i mean to be honest today it's becoming again a little bit you know with city pass as uh, it is a young you know young uh, uh, generation coming through again but for a while i mean i think the, the the age was 26 27 28 because i feel at that age you do become the the man you will be for the rest of your life you know when you're 20 you're still changing i mean you're still grow you know getting hair or somewhere you know it's still growing and you just it's it's just you still have to become yourself but at 26 27 28 i mean at least for me i think a lot of guys uh become mature they are the person they they know who they want to be they have everything in order you know so 
Yeah. It, sometimes I think you can explain why it's young kids, then all of a sudden it's older again, then it's young, and it's just I do think physically the guys are getting so yeah. strong at a younger age. We didn't have that back in the day. I mean, I was like this. Uh, obviously, you and Sherwood were two huge guys, yeah. and Ollie and I were one meter uh, ten, <laughs> so <laughs> with no muscle. But you know, um, yeah. If you look at the guys now, I mean, their legs are like this, and it's just become a different game. And I guess that's in line with you winning early as well. Do you think that Wimbledon semi-final came a little bit early for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, I had worked with uh, David Felgate uh, mm. and just actually quit the week before Wimbledon. Uh, but, you know, I had I had worked so good with him and, and, and knew so many things in my head from him that, you know, I played semis. I'm not going to do any discredit to my coach, Craig, at the time because he was a good grass court coach also and, and a good coach in general. But I still had so many things in my head from David also. So um, it was a good mix of the two, and I just felt relaxed. I mean, I, had a, I, I remember I had great first rounds. I played Galo Blanco. Uh, was, I mean, no disrespect, but it was Spanish with the grip like this. So it was a good warm-up. Uh, and then I had Spadia. So my draw was okay the first two rounds. And then I just started, you know, I had confidence and I beat Kafelnikov on center court. And everything just went kind of moving from there. So did it come too early at 22? I don't think so. Uh, I, I felt better at that stage already. Um, but like I said, then you have the pressure of doing good in every slam and every tournament and the only thing I didn't do well there is, you know, once you play semis in a slam, people look at you differently, players. They're more scared of you. And I didn't really push that through for myself. I didn't, okay. I, I wasn't the guy who was, was cocky about himself or arrogant in a good way. I should have just walked around like, I'm going to own you today. And I never had that in me. And that's one thing I wish, you know, you can't change a person. Obviously, you can't you know, you have it or not. But that's one thing I feel like I should have just pushed through and 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 be not arrogant, but you know what I mean, kind of cocky in a good way of, you know, okay, now yeah. I played semis. Now I'm going to be better than you and beat you. And, you know, so that's one thing. And then we fast forward 10 years towards the end of your career. And you've mentioned there about you loving the grass courts, but I believe you were about 80 in the world at the time, but you had a, you had another great run. And again, for all the British listeners, you were a quarterfinalist at Queens where you lost an Albandian again 10 years, <laughs> 10 years later in, in, a, in a tight match and then lost in a really tight five-setter to Roger in the fourth round. Was that like a bit of a last, almost like a last roll of the dice in the career? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I, I, I went through a tough period. You know, I lost I lost my mom in 2010. And, you know, people like that's that's where I come from is um, you never know what's going on in somebody's life. Yeah, we, You know, yeah, we're tennis players. But, you know, first of all, we're still we're humans. We're just like anybody else. So lost my mom. And my mom said, you know, play two or three more years, uh, you know, when she, before she, she passed. And it was always in my head, okay, I'm going to play two or three more years. And But the grass, I always loved the grass. I always I always played well. I played a couple fourth rounds in the semi. Uh, only had a couple of years where I lost first round. Um, I just enjoyed it. And, um, you know, now you start playing 
with a purpose also you know you want to do it for your mom she loved the tennis i was more you know i was mature yeah i wasn't in the best shape anymore because i knew i was going to quit almost so you kind of let yourself go but i still felt like even today i could play a set with these guys so why not a couple sets and on grass it's a little less physical sometimes you can serve your way out and i just played well i mean i beat for in five for the, in a great match and then I played Roger again, and I played on. I actually really, I played really well. He just came up with some stuff that you know Roger always does. So, um, yeah, it was it was the last run, but it felt so good, and I, I really had, like I said, the last six years I had a lot more pleasure in my matches and yeah. uh, actually pleasure in winning. You know, you win on a, on a, and you play again the next day. But I really enjoyed actually winning a match, and you start. You know, you win a match, you got to enjoy it, you know, and sometimes back in the day, it was just more, you saw it more like work and it just kind of never reflected and, and felt good about yourself. And when you were on that run, how much of it, you know, how how often were you thinking of your mom through that run? Was that like a big emotional motivator? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm going to be honest, the last two or three years, every changeover, I thought of my mom all the time. It kind of calmed me down. Um it helps you in a way. Um, it, yeah, like I said, you only lose, you only know what you have until you lose somebody. And my, I was really close with my mom, and and uh, yeah, it, in some way, it 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 was tough because obviously I would have rather had her watching me live. But you, yeah, I remember the first tournament I played again in uh, New Zealand. I mean, I almost started crying on changeover. But you know what? It kind of took my mind off things and. Yes. And you just played and you played hard. And uh, sometimes when I would go mad, I would say, well, you know, you know, you, it's, it's all relative and uh, you've got different perspective and uh, yeah, just, it helped me, it helped me a lot to just stay calm all the time. It sounds like your mom's breaking the rules. It sounds like she's the best coach that the, there is out there at change of events. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's nice to have, you know, yeah, it's tough. We had a really tough time, especially me, and still do today. But uh, like you said, it's just uh, she was my mental coach for the last three years, and uh, and it went yeah. well. That's absolutely that's awesome. It's lovely. And and in terms of the the game, I guess you're still involved in tennis. You know, obviously we bumped into each other at Wimbledon last year. You're still around it. A two prong question: What are the big differences now? From a, you stopped in 2013, and what are the similarities that you feel are just in the game and always will be in the game? Um, well, first, I think physically the guys are just so much. It's just different. The, obviously, the rackets are different. The things. The only thing I do like is that they slow down the game a little bit. Not too many fast courts, I mean, which is better for I think for for fans and stuff and for tennis itself, but. I have, it's just these kids grow up so quickly. I mean, if I look at myself when I was 17, 18, if you look at it, Tsitsipas, he's only, what, 19 or 20? Or even, you know, there's a kid coming, or Sebastian Corda, who's 20 yeah. years old. I mean, this guy, is, 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 he's 6'6", six, six, he's, you know, they're strong. These, they're, they're different than, than they used to be, I think. I do remember when I first started in the, in the qualies when I was 18, you know, I could play at 60% and win. And when I played at the end of my career, I played a challenger. 
if you didn't play at 90 or 100%, you were going home right away. So that was a big difference. Even when I, at the end, when I quit almost, it's just, yeah. you had to be there 100% all the time. And back in the day, it wasn't like that. And then, and then yeah, I guess the, the second bit is there, is there parts of the game that you think just will never change? That it just, that's, that's part of almost the, the makeup and the DNA of tennis? Uh, I mean, you know, unless they change the serving, the serves will always be there and it will always be the weapon to use, I think. But because if you look at Zverev, Djokovic, these guys, they, they know how to hit the ball. They move so well. Uh, that will always be there, I think. It's just, like you say, it's part of the game. But the serve, it's just if they don't, you know, I've heard they want to do one serve, then the game would change a little bit because serves huge weapon on the guys on the guys tour i would think you know that's where it starts um but yeah if it will always be there i don't I, that's a tough question because what you know everybody's different in, in in their game but you know the 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 one thing i would say about the service it's the only ball you can control it you yeah. decide when you're going to serve and you decide when you toss it up and how hard and what you want to do with it all the rest is reaction tennis these days they hit it so hard and you know this i mean i looked at the masters i mean there's rallies that you say this is almost not human anymore the way they run and take balls and stuff so it's changed a lot in that perspective but you know the surf will always be there you decide when how many yeah. times you bounce it <laughs> in some cases uh, a, a lot more but you know that's yeah it's one aspect. I don't think they're going to change it anyway. So. And if there was one thing, Xavier, when you played, not including mental and physical, which you've talked a lot about, so your actual tennis game, there's one thing that you could have done better, what would it be? Uh, not mentally, not physically. Um, like I said, I could have been a bit more, uh, I'm, I guess it it comes under a, a mental aspect a little bit, but is be believe more in myself. I was a guy who was always going with the flow, still am today. Um, uh, it's just, yeah, just, uh, I just played, you know, I loved the game. I played, I had fun doing it, but I never, unless for that one year where I said, I, I, I knew I was going to court, I was going to beat this guy, but I wish I would have had that through my career all the time, you know, believe in yourself. Um, yeah. You know, it's always easy to say it to somebody, just believe in yourself. Yeah. But how do you believe in yourself? So, um, but that comes through hard work and, and physical stuff and, and, you know, experiences, especially bad ones. Um, but yeah, for me, believe was always, yeah. I knew I was good, but I never, yeah, in some way, because off the court, I never want to be, yeah, you want to be better than somebody, but in a good way. And I never um, felt myself like I always felt equal to the guy who picks up the trash because I have respect for everybody. So, yeah. and, and I think off the court, that's good. But on the court, I wish I had a little bit more of a, that die mentality you know, like war on the court and, and, and have that belief. Yeah. 
Belgium tennis now. The little bit of the little bit of research I've looked into, starting with the, there seems to be like a bit of a different federation setup. So you've got the the French side, the Flemish side. You've got kind of an overview Belgium federation. You know, is this a good thing, bad thing? How how's the whole kind of federation structure in your opinion? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a bad thing now. I think a lot of players are looking more privately. Um, the federation is not uh, anymore what it used to be. Uh, I mean, back in the day, we had a great group, a lot of kids, at least 14 to 20 kids, I think, all practicing, a lot of coaches. Everything was very well structured. Now it just, uh, it's different. I don't, I don't see any, uh, I don't see a lot of guys there anymore. You know, there's, everybody's going privately. Uh, like you say, it's tough sometimes, you know, we're such a small country and we're always that divided thing from Flemish and French and, you know, and then you have one guy who's the president overlooking everything and it's, it's you know, it's too much hassle um, for everything. But yeah, not many guys knocking on the door uh, right now, not too many. So I don't know. I haven't looked into it too much lately because it has not you know too many people um coming on strong but um yeah just have to see but a lot more privates here in belgium now yeah just not many guys you know the, go to the federation where when i i barely know who's coming up anymore i think a lot of guys are just doing privately um you know sometimes that's a bad thing because you know people just want to get money and coach the kid and this and that but sometimes it's it's good but the federation, it's just, yeah, I think over the years it's become too much Flemish, French, and what's what. And, you know, we're such a small country that I almost feel like, well, maybe we should get one federation, you know, It'd be good for kids to learn languages and stuff and, and practice together. Um, now I know it's more like the federation organizes regional practices for the better ones, but, you know, it's changed a lot. Yeah, there's not enough people anymore. Um, I think also, you know, because of uh, Kleisters and Henan, there was, you know, Ali and me and Christoph League and all those guys, there was a big interest in tennis, you know. So that's gone a little bit. Um, and I, I mean this to no disrespect, but David Goffin is an amazing tennis player. He's so good. Um, but I think it's not a, you don't, you know, there's not enough character to promote it, I think. Yeah. Um, he does his thing so well, plays yeah. he's a really nice guy, but it's not somebody that's going to make you pick up a racket, you know, or you, wanna, you want your kids yeah. to, to, to go after. Um, so that's, you know, I don't mean it's in a bad way, but. It's not like a feather with presence or, a, yeah. you know, I'll say a Kyrgios or something, which is a little bit over the top. But, you know, somebody with with that stuff. And that that's fine. Everybody's a different person. But that's, you know, like if you looked at Kleisters, everybody wanted to play with, you know, as Kleisters and do this. So you need that one person who's got a bit of character and that you want to get up for at night and watch a game and, you know, unfortunately, I think with with Goffin as good as he is, that's not the thing he wants to do. And what happened to Kopjan? Because I was coaching players in Junior Grand Slams in 2012, 
Well, I think he won the French Open juniors that yeah. year. And and I thought he was really good. I really felt he, he was someone who was gonna was gonna push on and be a proper tennis player. But it yeah. feels like he's got a bit stuck. Uh yeah, I coached him actually for a while, uh probably about six months. Um I mean it's the same story. The the kid is too nice. He's super nice. He doesn't have that die mentality. He works very hard. He does everything right. He works hard physically. This mentally, he's actually he doesn't get mad, which I sometimes told him get mad. You know, show your emotion in a good way. You mm-hmm. can't always be on one level. Um, super nice guy, but like I said, it, I don't think he has that die mentality and that's that's tough sometimes but like you say it was really good very steady yeah but i yeah i think he hasn't um evolved with the game the game's so fast and he stands way back and you know he he doesn't have the the hands and the talent to just get away with it and he works hard but you know yeah we we had a lot of conversations about this and even though you want to be focused all the time on your tennis, being too focused every minute of the day, always tennis is not good either. You got to let go yeah. and uh, a person, you know, and, and do go do something you like. And, you know, yeah, uh, yeah it's just, you know, the kid that was a birthday, I said, have a glass of wine. Yeah, but yeah. that's not good for my body. And, you know, at some point, too much is too much, and I think you got to find that right balance. And I don't think Kimmer fa- found that. Uh, okay. Yeah. And any juniors? I've noticed there's a couple of girls that have decent rankings coming through. Anyone for us to watch out for? Uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I haven't followed too much. I know that Sofia Kostulas. Yeah. Uh, she's really good. Um, there's one kid. On the on the men's side, also I forgot his name. Is it Robert maybe or something? Uh, but those are all yeah. Uh, ones practicing in the states, I think. Um, so not many here at home. I don't. There's a couple of really good ones, but they're only six years old, so I won't bore you with that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and what have you been up to since over the last five or six years? Uh, I mean, I got really lucky. I, I went into this Champions Tour and, and, and events and, uh, and uh, yeah, exhibition events. I love it. I, like I said, I really love it because it's a different side of tennis. It's, oh. it's, it's playing. It's laughing with the crowd. I mean, I enjoy it a lot. The one in Royal Albert Hall is unbelievable. Wimbledon yeah. was nice. I've played two years now. I absolutely love it. You get to laugh at the crowd, show off a little bit, still play good tennis because you got to show you can still play too. Um, but just more interaction. And that's, like I said, that's one thing that I missed when we were playing on the real tour. It would have been nice. Obviously, you can't do as much as now because now it's not as physical and it's more all a little bit show and not, not very tiring on the legs. But yeah, it's I love it. And, you know, I do probably eight to ten events a year like that, or no, yeah, maybe eight, yeah, seven, eight, and then I go. I still go to Florida. Also, uh, I still play a little bit in France, like club matches and stuff. So I keep busy. I mean, I'm loving it. So as long as I can do it and my legs allow it and mm-hmm. no injuries, and then uh, 
and then I'll keep doing it. You're still a player. <laughs> yeah, well, not really. I don't want to travel 35 weeks anymore a year, but uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy it. And, you know, it goes in spurts. It's like one or two months of play, and then I get a month off and just be home and play some golf and then be with friends and family. So, and then you go on the road again a little bit. So it's nice to get away once in a while and, and travel. So I still, I still enjoy that. So I'm always looking for Christmas presents when I've been with my wife for 20 years now. You know, we've been married for 12. Nice. And I tell you what would be an amazing Christmas present for her, Xavier. 2021 is tickets to the Royal Albert Hall to see oh, you yeah. to see your strut your stuff. So can we on live on this podcast, can we have an agreement that you're gonna get me two tickets to come and watch you and, and all of the guys playing at the Royal Albert Hall in two thousand twenty one? That's actually good because then I could tell IMG to invite me again. Because <laughs> you know it's an invitation, so you never know. But I've played there six, seven years in a row. So hopefully I'm in it again and if I'm there Next year, then we text and two tickets will be there for you, for sure. And champagne, because I know you like to have one. Oh, hey, so I'm I'm now going to just cut this 30-second period <laughs> and I'm going to give this to my wife for Christmas this year. So this Christ, Christmas, yeah. <laughs> Christmas present sorted. And, and, and what's next for Xavier Melise? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I would love to just keep doing these events. Like I said, I absolutely love it. Um, the only thing uh, during this whole period with COVID and still going is I do, I've been thinking more of maybe doing something, you know, paddle is becoming big sport like it is in, in uh, Great Britain also, and in Spain, it's huge, of course, but in Belgium, it's becoming really big and I enjoy the game. So I'm trying to see if I maybe want to get involved in opening a club and stuff because you know it's the periods like this you realize well once this happens i don't really have anything besides the tennis so i do want to kind of invest a little bit still in sports but maybe stay busy not where i'm working from nine to five in a paddle club but you know to, to get involved be there make decisions yeah. and so you know also something to do because now I just sit at home I'm sure like a lot of people with this time, but I, yeah, I kind of want to get into a little business, maybe opportunities to, to stay busy and to keep, you know, to keep doing what I love and stay, stay in sports and be connected with people. You must be a tricky paddle player. Oh, <laughs> I don't play I played the other day, yeah, but a lot of touches, yeah, I like it. Nice <laughs> little lumps with, with spin on it so you can't get him. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great sport. So Xavier, it's been amazing. What what a lovely chat. What a real treat for the podcast to have you on. Um, Thank we, you. We we finish with a little quick fire round. So you're ready for our quick fire? Shoot. Serve or return? Return. Favorite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. One rule change that you would have in tennis. Shortest sets, maybe. ATP or Davis Cup? Uh, Davis Cup. Drop shot or lob? Drop shot all day. <laughs> and don't I know it well? Retro ones, retro <laughs> drop shots. <laughs> What's a retro drop shot? One that bounces on your side, comes back to my side. <laughs> you, I know those well against you as well. <laughs> 
Feder- federation or private? Uh, no, that's tough. Uh, federation. Three sets or five at Grand Slams? Five. PTPA or not? PTPA? Yeah, the, the latest the latest kind of player council against against going against the ATP that Novak Djokovic has set up. Oh nah, nah. No 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 counselling. <laughs> <laughs> I've done enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> and who and who should our next guest be? I I would say and I, I travelled with him a little bit, um uh last year and alistair has actually worked with him too is a really super nice kid uh lloyd harris up and coming star big athlete nice guy uh very uh very good guy and he could be the one to watch in the next coming years he's already been on the podcast have you oh lloyd has no way yeah i gotta look that up then so then i would say go back to my uh, younger years, and I don't know if he's been on, but David Felgate would be an unbelievable guy to have in your podcast inside of tennis and coaching. Amazing. He's he's on the list. We'll get uh, in contact. But if you he's not been on yet, but if you could also drop him a message, that would that would make it even better as well. well. Xavier Melise, thank you so much for your time. To, to just pick up your your tennis brains, your insights, your fun, your your everything about the game. It brings back great memories from me uh, watching you, but also having the privilege of playing a long time ago. So it's lovely to see you again. No, same to you. It's been a real pleasure to that you have me on, and uh, it was a nice chat. And uh, it's actually very nice to after all these years we go way back. So uh, thank you for having me. A big thank you to Xavier for coming on the show. It was oh, what a what a great conversation that was to have with him, and yeah, just to see how he was. He's how I how I remembered him as a junior. He always had that way about him. Nothing was a problem. Uh, he he just played with freedom. He played the way that God gifted him. And yeah, I suppose my my big reflections from the conversation. Truly, we're talking about, for me, Xavier Melise, there's no reason why he wouldn't be, at the very least, an Andy Murray. You know, coming away with three Grand Slams, a couple of Olympic golds, uh, but it just shows, I guess, going that extra, that extra mile, or those extra miles that somebody like an Andy Murray has to get himself in unbelievable physical shape. Really has squeezed that, that extra bit out of him. And I think by Xavier's own admission, he didn't quite do that until later on in his career. And But he truly was a brilliant player. Anyone that hasn't heard of Xavier Melise but has listened to this, please go and watch him on YouTube. Anyone that's in and around my age or older will have, and I'm sure will appreciate just what a, what a fantastic player he was. And yeah, for him to come on and, and, and talk through some of those things and how... It was so interesting that he, he kept talking about the fact that he just hadn't lost enough, <laughs> you know, and, and how many players, coaches, parents are, 
uh, are trying to create an environment where their kids don't lose because they, they don't like to deal with that difficulty. And he said it on so many occasions, you know, that, that was that was his big regret, that he wasn't in an environment where he lost and he lost enough in, in tournament play, but also in practice as well. Uh, for him to be able to build that resilience and, and, and ultimately then be able to, to build the skills around that to bring him back to, to, to squeeze that extra 5-10% out of him. So yeah, a couple of big takeaways and I'm sure there's, there's lots more that you guys will take from that. So thank you again, Xavier. And thank you to you all for your support. Uh, as I say on every podcast, the likes... The ratings, the reviews, they go a long way. And as we get towards the end of 2020, thank you for all your support. We will be in touch in the next couple of days with our final podcast of the year and also a review of the year as well as a little bonus edition. So please do join us for that. And we look forward to going into 2021. So thank you all. I'm Dan Keenan. We are Control the Controllables.